You're listening to What Goes On Here, and I'm Sam Walker. Whoever we are, and whatever we do, we all have moments when we feel like we don't quite fit with the world around us. What Goes On Here is where you can listen to real stories of people who at times couldn't see a way forward, people who found themselves stuck, maybe in a life they never imagined would be theirs, people who had to face their fears, face themselves, but they changed and change lives of people around them too. Episode 4, Steve. Steve's a chef and runs his own restaurant. He loves food, he loves preparing it, cooking with it, and the fact it means so much more than just fuel for your body. It helps me express myself, you know, it's just love. And to me, food is like a glue that sticks everything together. You know, if you're at an event, it's all about the food, the company and the food. The, the food's what brings people together. Steve wasn't always a chef. He had lots of different jobs across the business sector, often managing big teams of people. But he had a secret. Before I could go into the board meeting, I was sat in a toilet, just lock the door, put a towel under it, smoke some crack, and then, then smoke some heroin to come down and then go into a meeting. As Steve descended further into drug addiction, he lost his job, his car, his family, and nearly his life. My mum was like, we've planned your funeral. We've got your funeral planned. We've got your pallbearers planned. We've got everything, order of service, because we're going to lose you. I was cold. You know, when you see great whites, black eyes, and that's, that's it, just nothing going on in there. That's what I was like. I just swam through the ocean, took what I wanted to take, and it was inconsequential to me. When you cease to see yourself as part of humanity, how do you then become the person you've always wanted to be? I used to sit there watching National Geographic and smoking heroin and going, I'd love to go to these places, I'd love to do this, but I'm never going to do that. I'm not worth that, I'm not capable of doing that. Steve isn't his real name, and his words have been voiced by an actor. Your mum and dad split up when you were seven, and unfortunately you'd witnessed a lot of violent domestic abuse at this time. How did that affect you as a child? It's a period in my life that really I I cut off a little bit. after things that I'd seen and stuff that I'd been through. It was my like, defence mechanism. My mum tells me for weeks I didn't talk, I didn't speak, and sort of like from a young age I know it was very wrong. But I was sort of like defenceless and you know it wasn't right. I wanted to protect my mum but I couldn't do anything about it. And I think from a young age I used to look at children and think at school and think, you're not like me, you don't see what I see. I always felt a bit different, a bit of an outcast. I think as a child I'd be sort of happy putting my, myself in a room or going into a forest to just being on my own really. I was never really that, that sociable. I just cut myself off a little bit. Could you talk to anyone about it? Yeah. No. No, not really. I don't think we were encouraged to speak about things. Like my mum was just overwhelming with the amount of love that she showed us, but we, we sort of come from like, you know, quite an old school sort of family. It's just sort of like you get on with it and you know that's the hand you've been dealt, so you just crack on really. But, you know, on the flip side, I have some great memories as a child. I lived next door but one to my gran. Uh, I was always baking with my gran. That's where my love of food comes from, doing all that sort of stuff. Probably my gran stepped in and said, you know, you can take a bit of looking after. My mum was working all the hours God sends to keep the house going. So, you know, I've got a lot of happy memories as well. It's not just all bad stuff. How old were you when you first tried drugs? 12, 13 or something. I started experimenting with drugs. I started smoking, smoking cannabis, um... By sort of 13, I was using ecstasy. 13 years old? Yeah, 
yeah, taking ecstasy in school. Um, I, I got suspended from secondary school when I was 13, 14 for smoking cannabis, but I wasn't smoking cannabis. I was actually taking ecstasy, and obviously I was about 14 years old. I double-dropped two ecstasy tablets, and I was absolutely, well, I was a state. The, the teachers pulled me in and were sort of grilling me, saying, what have you taken, this, that, and the other? One teacher, she comes in and she says, have you been smoking cannabis? I thought, that's the easy way out. Yeah, I've been smoking a bit of cannabis. I thought it made me happy. It was a status thing too. Like, look at me, but don't come near me. What happened next? I'd had to move into foster care as my mum couldn't cope with me. They weren't a nice family. They wouldn't let me eat the dinner table with their kids. It deeply affected me. The, the, the place was in a rough area than we lived and I started hanging around with a load of older boys. Uh, they sort of became a family and then in my mid-teens I got introduced to cocaine and I absolutely loved it. Um, then I started at work. I'd always worked. I had paper rounds and bits and pieces with my brother to make money. Um, so by the age of 14, 15, I sort of went into butchery. I was working for a local butchers. I was I was going into school, signing the register. They were cool with that. The teachers used to come and buy meat off me at the end of the day. I think they just used to look and go, do you know what? He's doing a job. Hopefully this might be the making of him. He might settle down. Um, but the same thing again. I just had more income there and, you know, it would just be drug taking. It kept spiralling. I was going out on a Friday, be off my head all weekend, getting into work, and I was falling asleep. I remember one time I was on the, a big mincer, like feeding steak through to make steak mince, and I'd taken too much the weekend, and I just collapsed and fell into the tray of meat. And I woke up with my face in this tray of meat with my boss just stood behind me going absolutely wild. And he was like, look, I just we need to just call this a day. I, th- I think that was the first sort of impact I noticed. I was like, jeepers, I've lost my money, I've lost my income. I really loved that job, but I just didn't have any sort of control over, you know, putting a substance in me. I'd put that substance in me and that was it. I'd go out on Friday night saying I'm just going to have one beer. I'd have that beer and that was it. I'd come down three days later. Did you not want to stop? No. No, no, I don't think I did. I think it was just what I used to do. I think it was like sort of companionship. I always had it. I was. All, it was always there for you. At the time, I thought it relaxed me and made me get me sort of on an even keel. Um, I remember it being on Christmas Day, making up excuses to sneak out and go and score a bag just so I could feel normal. My whole family, you could see it in their faces, you know, like, what are you doing? You're going out, it's Christmas Day, why are you doing it? I wasn't even realising that was going off and it was, you know, impacting on my family sat at home thinking my son, my brother, you know, whatever, going out and scoring heroin on Christmas Day and he's going to come back and he's going to have that glazed, horrible look. What effect did it have on you seeing your family sitting there pleading with you? I remember one time, I shot off one time about three o'clock in the morning to score some crack and some heroin. I come back with like 200 quid's worth of gear and I remember my mum just screaming the house down like she got a hairbrush and just started smashing it. She ended up in a ball, but broken at the bottom of the stairs, crying her eyes out. She'd smashed the brush up and I was just looking at her like totally, there's just nothing there. There's absolutely nothing there. I was just thinking, I just wish you'd go back to bed so I can use my drugs, you know. And that was how it was. I never thought about anyone else or how they viewed it. The irony in all of this was that during this time, to the outside world, you seemed normal. You were always working and and you held down some pretty good jobs. I was going into like board meetings with senior managers and I was like, before I could go into the board meeting, I was sat in a toilet, just locked the door, put a towel under it, smoked some crack and then, then smoked some heroin to come down and then go into a meeting. The effort that all this took. Yeah, yeah I was like... 
the night before I was always priming my drug dealer up I'd be round at six seven o'clock because I was like managing people so I had to be in before them to make sure I got production lines up and running I'd be ringing up my dealer I'd be knocking on his door scoring I'd have a use up staff would come in get them cracking then I'd like make up some excuse I'd have to go to the dentist my granddad must have died about 18 times or something uh, anything I could do to get out of work as soon as I finished work I was scoring there were bits of crime I was doing on the side to fund my lifestyle I was still running people about, taking people to a nearby town to score drugs, so I'd get paid in drugs. You essentially had two full-time jobs going on. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, I was non-stop. My day started at six. I'd be lucky if I got, like, two hours kip a night. So what changed? Um, I was with a girl. I got a girl pregnant, and she was like, I'm not having this baby. Um, and that, that really deeply affected me. That was when I sort of picked up, well, I picked up heroin. I had a lot of this emotional pain that I, I couldn't talk, that I couldn't express. I had this feeling inside. I think I'd taken my mate to school and he was like, oh, I haven't got any crack, but here you go, I have some brown, some heroin. And I remember smoking it for the first time and I, it was just like, wow. I was just like, I was completely numbed. You know, it's the best known painkiller to man, isn't it? That sort of took away that feeling I had inside. But as soon as I got into that sort of stuff, everything started crumbling really quick. I lost my job, lost my phone contract, lost my car. Do you know what I mean? Everything just started sort of going. And then I started ramping up, making the crime more full-time, taking off my parents, my family, off anybody. People would be like, if, if they come around to my mum's house, if you go around to Steve's house, don't leave your handbag lying around. That's how it was. I'd go through handbags, I'd go through anybody's to get a fix, to get a score. So what was a, a typical day like for you during this time? It'd be sort of... Uh, I'd get up in the morning, it'd be scratching around, trying to find some something, even a dimp or something, you know, just to smoke. And then I'd be thinking about scoring, where could I get money from, where could we go and commit crime. As soon as we had that, it was like, let's make as much money as we can. If not, let's just make a tenner and get a bag and let's just, you know, use that. Um, and that's that's all it was, you know. It was sort of like, get up, use, and that was it. Nothing. Absolutely Nothing. So again, what changed? Towards the end of me using, I was living in this like crack house with needles everywhere. A couple of lads be scratting around trying to use up. It was over the Christmas period. I'd be going into my mum's house, taking presents to sell, uh, to use for drugs. I remember sort of coming home thinking that was all right, and I'd sold everything. So, so you broke into your own mother's house just before Christmas and stole your own family's Christmas yeah, presents. Yeah, I took presents. Sold them, spent it, spent it on drugs, had a massive use up for like, I stayed up for like four or five days. And then I went back to my mum's house thinking everything was cool. When I heard my sister on the phone to my mum, absolutely terrified. She didn't come out of her room till my mum had come home and I was in the house. And even then, like, my mum was screaming at me. Do you know what I mean? Like, what are you doing? But I was just like, totally... I used to call myself like a shark, you know, sharks probably aren't even cold, but I was cold. You know, when you see great whites, black eyes, and that's that's it, just nothing going on in there. That's what I was like. I just swam through the ocean, took what I wanted to take, and it was inconsequential to me. So even when your sister was in her bedroom, terrified of you, still, there was nothing inside you saying, this isn't right. No, 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 no guilt there, no remorse there. I was like clinical. I was just like, I was, I was just a robot at that point. Put the drugs in, get through another day, put the drugs in, 
get through another day. You know. Was that the lowest point? Would you say? Do you know? Do you know what? There's probably loads of low points that I've missed out. But you know, I remember these two things sticking in my head because you know what I mean. Them two girls, honestly, you know, I'm teared up now just thinking about the amount of stuff. You know, my sisters struggled at school at the time, and I was putting them through all this. She was studying for a degree. I put them right through it. So, what was the tipping point? I'd taken some jewellery from my mum, my sister, stuff from my grandparents, and I'd pawned it and sold it. Um, but this time, my mum reported me, and this time I was coming back down to the road to my mate's house where I'd been using, and a cop car pulled past, and uh, he, he took me down to interview and we sat there chatting and we were talking for like half an hour an hour before the tape went on you know and these were his words not mine he said you know what I lock up I lock up smackheads every day but I see something more in you I see something different in you he said I- I'm going to recommend we try and find you some sort of treatment some sort of therapy uh, and at the time I thought what can you see in me I've just robbed my own mum's house terrified my sister terrified my family you know, the amount of Christmases I used to ruin, they'd be like, whoa, what's he going to be doing if he wasn't sneaking off to go and use heroin on bloody Christmas Day? It's a family day. It was, you know, robbing people's houses or people knocking on the door, me getting dragged out of the house and stamped all over by drug dealers. There, there was always something. So I think when he said to me, it was like, this guy has taken the time to talk to me. I went back with this in my head, back to the house where I was using drugs Um and I remember I had a needle in my arm at this point and there was this lad and he was sticking a needle in his groin and he hit the artery and it just blew out and I was there covered in blood, like covered in somebody else's blood in a house. There was needles everywhere and I remember just thinking, wow, is this is this what I'm going to be? Because at that point I was like, do you know what? I'd rather just go over. I'd rather take too much gear and go to sleep and never wake up. You really thought about that? Yeah, yeah, that was it. I thought, do you know what? If this is going to be my life, because I kept, I kept having periods where I'd get a job, settle down, be cool for a little bit, but I've never addressed any of the issues. You know, the outside was good, looking good, good haircut, rah, 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 but all that sort of stuff. But inside I was still broken and then all the wheels would come off again and I thought, is this going to be my life? Keep going round and round and round and round. The following day, I rang my mum and I said, do you know what? I just need to do something. I need to get some sort of help. My mum was like, this is it. You know, I'll support you. And my mum made a few phone calls and straight away they were like, I'm going to offer you a treatment. I think they could see I was at the end of the road that like, I'd had enough and I was close to killing myself. I went into detox and I remember it really opened my eyes. I was looking at people in their 40s and 50s still battling the drugs in and out of detox, in and out. And I was thinking, do you know what? I'm 27, me. I've got another 50, 60 years. And and I went for it. Everything that was available to me, therapies, I started applying myself. But you, you came out of treatment and started working actually for the drugs charity that had helped you. And then six months later, you relapsed. I was with this girl and we broke up. And you know what? It went from zero to 110 miles an hour I was using for I don't know a month or something like that my my life just deteriorated it crumbled my life just went all the way back to the point where you know I I did some mad things I ended up sitting there in so much pain and misery that I sat there one night with a pair of pliers and you know I, I don't like admitting it but I was trying to hurt myself I pulled all my own toenails out I sat there and cut all the bottom of my feet up 
I was trying to hurt myself. To, to what? To feel? To feel human? You know, it's like um, self-harm. Anything, you know, like drugs, sticking needles in your arm, doing this, that and the other. It, it's a self-harm. It's destructive. And that's what it, it was. It, and the drugs didn't work. The, the drugs did not work anymore. I've been using and I've been successfully suppressing these emotions, but they stopped working. What do you mean? I couldn't get that same buzz. I needed more of it. I need more of that. You know, I spent three or four grand or something in the space of a month that's not working start hurting myself have my counselors ringing me trying to show me support and i was just shut off the phone switch the phone off i'll sit in my little crack den and i'll use my gear and then bless his cotton socks my counselor i used to do this thing on a wednesday and take clients to the gym i was supposed to be like a role model and i was i was still bang at it i'd be doing circuits with him and i'd look rough as hell right i walked into the council my counselor was sat there waiting for me and he just took me into a room and said you've got two options you exit our housing because i wasn't just working for them i was living in their housing too or um you get your stuff and you come with me now and i take you to our other treatment center and do a deep program and boom the floodgates opened and i just cried and cried and I remember walking into this centre and all the staff were like, what are you doing over here visiting? What are you doing? And I was like, I'm not I'm not visiting. I've relapsed. I'm back in treatment. Yeah, I was broken. I just cried. I just cried. Had you, had you really cried the first time? Had you really opened up in that way? I'd never let go. When I first come in, I'd, I'd done it more for the girl I was with, more for the family, this, that and the other. But... But this time, those eight weeks, I used them, you know, I, I don't know if it was a little tactic, but they made me shave my stubble. And I know what he was making me do. He was making me look in the mirror, getting used to looking at myself and being happy with myself. And I had eight weeks of that. But I got to the stage where I'd cry and I wouldn't wipe my tears away because I was proud to feel them on my cheeks and, and I was proud to feel emotion. And another thing with my family, I remember my sister and mum coming to see me and, and I'd given them hope, like, yeah, he's getting his life back together and then six months later I'd be whipped, you know, I'd whip the carpet out from under them. And yeah, I remember being sat in a room and that was when things started hitting home. My mum was like, we've planned your funeral. We've got your funeral planned. We've got your pallbearers planned. We've got everything, order of service, because we're going to lose you. You're going to die and my sister sat there saying, you know, when I have my first child, you're not having anything to do with them. I don't want you anywhere near my children, you know. How did you feel at this point? Yeah, I felt that. You know, a year before, they could have said to me, they could have said that to me and it wouldn't have made any difference. But I was on the ropes. Do you know what I mean? That really hit me. But it seems like you had to open up a door and let a lot of pain out and experience that pain before you could let anyone's love in. Mm. I didn't want to be vulnerable. That That's why my first set of treatment, I'd give a little bit, but would always throw up a wall of defence. So at what point during this whole process did you rediscover your love of food? Um, you know what? I've always loved food. I was saying that before about my gran. You know, I'd go around and she was cooking pig's trotters and boiling cow's heads on the stove. I was plucking pheasants at two or three. We were proper farming folk. My brother would go off and do adventurous things like cycling, fishing. I'd clean the house and get concoctions brewing in the kitchen and I'd do the baking. Uh, I'd always been really passionate about it, but, but when I came through treatments, like my voluntary, my voluntary was in a cafe um, and I started washing pots and stuff like that. But soon I realized I've got a skill here when it comes to food. And you know what? 
it helps me express myself and it was a great way of sort of like giving back and whenever I do stuff now for my family I get them over and it's all about good food great company you know it's just love and to me food is like a glue that sticks everything together you know if you're at an event it's, it's all about the food the company and the food the, the food's what brings people together your voluntary work went on to paid work um, in catering. You became a chef and a, and a catering manager. But that wasn't, you know, that wasn't enough. You kept on dreaming. Now you run your own restaurant. I mean, that's phenomenal. Yeah, my mum always taught us work hard, save hard, you know, and you get what you want. My brother and I had always set up little businesses together, chopping logs, like delivering papers. I was never afraid of hard work. And and I spent two years looking at sites, writing up business plans, never found the right place. Then then I saw this place and I just felt it straight away. As soon as I walked in, I just got this feeling that this building had been loved in the past. It had that love, uh, but it's been neglected and it was, you know, it was up to me to get its heart beating again. What was it like the day you got the keys? I woke up shaking. It's, it's the scariest thing I've ever done. But if you don't get out of your comfort zone, how are you going to grow? Yeah. It was it was the most daunting day of my life, mad day. I had to talk to staff, do a stock take. I actually went upstairs at one point and sat and put a duvet over my head. I didn't want anyone to see me. I thought, you know, you've made a huge mistake. But I thought, get a grip. And that first night that people were in and eating and glasses were chinking, I just thought, I did it. I brought this place back to life. Is there any bit of your past that if you could get rid of it, you'd get rid of it? No, no. I couldn't do that. Like you know, like I say, everything that's happened before today has made me who I am today. Um, no, I just couldn't. There are things I feel guilty about, but that's that's past. That's done. It's dusted. No, I'd have to keep everything the same because anything that I change could affect who I am today. How do you feel about you right now? I feel really good. You know, I love myself, and I've got a lot of confidence in myself. You know, I tell myself I can do these things, you know, from coming here and managing a team and developing a business to my partner and my family ties and my family relationships. I just, I keep working away at it. And, you know, I don't ever tell myself I'm cured. I've got things sorted. I'll never have things boxed off. I just keep evolving, keep growing. Um, you know, I've been out to India. I've been to Italy two or three times. I've been to Bosnia. Every time I've flown, uh, I'm on a plane. I've, I've looked out the window. I've had tears coming down my face because I used to sit there watching National Geographic and smoking heroin and going, I'd love to go to these places. I'd love to do this, but I'm never going to do that. I'm not worth that. I'm not capable of doing that. And, and now I get up every day and say, I can do that. I'm capable of doing that. And I keep pushing. Um, I'm a little nephew. had his birthday the other day. And I remember when he was born, driving like a madman over to see him. And I was like one of the first people to hold him. And I gave him a bath. And I was stood there with my back to the rest of the family and there were tears streaming down my face. And I thought, do you know what? This is life. This is better than any drug. This is life. Talking to me, Sam Walker. You've been listening to What Goes On Here. Coming up next, episode five, John. My brother kept a diary for years of what they did to us every day and, and what we ate. And when the social worker finally read the diary, he, he, he broke down crying. And this is a grown man. And I said in my book, if you keep kicking a dog, that's going to be a violent dog. I mean, I was absolutely insane. 